So last week I introduced you to Elijah, the third character in our Unlikely Heroes series. And if you missed last week, I'll give you a little refresher. Elijah showed up on scene about 850 BC uh, during the period of the kings. The children of Israel went through a cycle where they'd have a good king and a bad king and a good king and a bad king. And right now they're at a period when they have a bad king and Elijah has to go confront this bad king. His name is Ahab. Ahab was about as bad as they come. He was a weak leader. He disobeyed the Lord's commands. He married a foreign woman, which was clearly against God's law. Uh, her name was Jezebel and she was a real rough character. Uh, she convinced him to destroy all the altars to Jehovah God. They established altars to Baal and to Asherah and uh, began to worship these false gods. And what they did really angered the Lord. So God sent Elijah to confront Ahab about his sin. And because Ahab wouldn't repent, uh, the Lord laid it on um, Elijah's heart to declare a famine. So he prayed that the rain would not come, that, uh, that there would be no rain on the, uh, on the ground for a period of three and a half years. And then God sent Elijah into the wilderness uh, to protect him because clearly Jezebel was going to be coming after him. So we talked last week how God sent the ravens to feed him uh, day and night. He got his water from Brook Kareth. And over time, the brook dried up. He was out of water, and uh, God sent him to uh, the region of Sidon to uh, <clears throat> a widow of Zarephath. And as we saw last week, the widow was about to go prepare her last meal, and her and her son were going to die. And Elijah said, no, serve me first. And, and uh, she obeyed, and God blessed, and the jar never ran out of oil and flour, and it was a miracle. Uh, but that, unfortunately, wasn't the end of tragedy for this poor lady. 1 Kings 17, 17 says, Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Now, I can only imagine the pain that this poor woman was going through. Not only had she lost her husband, but now she'd lost her son, her only son. And this was a double blow to her because when her, with her husband gone, she depended upon her son in her future to take care of her and to provide for her. There wasn't social security. There wasn't other things like that. Your family took care of you. Now her son was gone um, and she was unsure what she was gonna do from there. So she turned to Elijah and said, what, what have you done? Why have you allowed this to happen? So let's pick it up, verse 19. What did Elijah do? Verse 19 says, give me your son. Elijah replied, he took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. I mean, even Elijah recognized the tragedy that this poor woman was living through. And so in this moment of desperation, you know, he's just weeping and, and lying on this child and praying for God to heal him. In verse 22, the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know 
that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. This is the first resurrection in the Bible. Throughout scripture, there are 10 people who were miraculously brought back to life. And of course, Jesus is the only one who predicted his own death, that he would be in the ground for three days and that he would rise again. And Jesus, of course, did that. But there are 10 resurrections in the Bible, and this is the first of those. So God performed this incredible miracle at the widow's house, and then God moved Elijah on. Now we're in chapter 18, verse 1. It says, after a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now once again, and I don't want you to miss this, every time God tells Elijah to do something, Elijah just does it. Obedience is probably one of the greatest characteristics of his life. Whenever God tells him to move, he moves. Whenever God tells him uh, to go, he goes. Whenever God tells him to hide, he hides. Whatever the Lord tells him to do, that's what Elijah does. Verse 16, Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Now clearly, Ahab was not very excited to see Elijah because Ahab blamed Elijah for the drought and the famine that was plaguing the land. You and I probably can't even imagine just how horrible the living conditions were at this time. It was probably similar to the Dust Bowl of the 1930s here in the United States. There was no water in the land. The creeks and the rivers were dry. The lakes were empty. The grass was dead. The trees were dead. The cattle were dying for lack of food and water. The stench of death probably just prevailed throughout the land. And those who were surviving were probably skinny. Their lips were chapped. I don't know about you, but I don't know how I would survive without Blistec, you know? I mean, I have to, I think there's crack in this because <laughs> seriously, you, you use it one time and you can't stop. You know what I'm saying? You know, I just can't, I have to use it all the time. These poor folks, they didn't have Blistex or chapstick or anything like that. Their skin was dry and probably itchy. Uh, their feet were probably cracked open. Their hair was full of dust and dirt. They probably had a hard time getting the, the dust and dirt out of their eyes and their mouth and their ears. I grew up on a farm and only one of our tractors had a, had a cab on it. So if you're doing most of the things, you're out in a tractor with no cab and the dust. And by the time you get to the end of the day, I mean, your face and your ears and your hair's just covered with dust. That was the life that these poor folks lived. It wasn't a pleasant experience. And Ahab blamed Elijah for the whole thing. He says, you troubler of Israel. But Elijah said, whoa, 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 just a minute here. Time out. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your family have. You abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. So don't try and pin this on me. You're the one that caused all this. You're the one who started pagan worship. You're the one who violated God's word. You're the one that caused this problem. So Elijah lays out for Ahab what we're going to do. Verse 19, now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. That means they're basically on her payroll. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now, these prophets of Baal hated Elijah. Now, they loved the favor of Ahab and Jezebel, 
you know, they, they enthusiastically promoted the persecution of any of the true followers of Yahweh. But over the last three years, well, they've been severely humbled by Elijah because of this drought. Because remember, Baal was the fertility God, right? Baal was the God who sent the rains and caused things to grow. And so here they are, prophets of Baal, and it won't rain and things won't grow. And so he's making them look really bad. And so they really hate him. Nevertheless, Ahab obeys Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. Uh, Asherah, they all come and they're summoned to Mount Carmel. Verse 21, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Now, what a great question. How long? Now, mind you, he's standing on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, uh, typically, it's more of a mountain range than just one great big mountain. And it's usually got great trees and it's very lush. I'm sure it was, it was not like that at this particular time. But they called all the people. Well, at this time, there were probably two and a half to three million Israelites. And Ahab had sent word throughout the land to bring them all together along with all the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And so we're probably, we probably have assembled here a couple million people. Now remember, this is the days before PA systems. So how would they communicate? Well, the way they did it back in those days is the speaker would stand there and then a certain distance out, maybe, maybe 50 yards out, there would be another person standing and then 50 yards beyond that, another person. So that when Elijah would speak, he would say, how long? And the next guy would say, how long? How long? How long? Will you waver? Will you waver? Will you waver? You get the point? I can do the whole sermon this way if you want. <laughs> but that's how they would communicate to get word all the way to the back so the people could question. But he's saying, how long are you going to wait and waver before you repent? How long are you going to endure this famine and see your families die? How long are you going to worship this fertility God that isn't providing anything for you? How long are you going to bounce back and forth? That's what that word waver kind of means. Bounce back and forth between worshiping God and Yahweh and worshiping Baal. You know, the issues of Elijah's day were more similar to the world that we live in than you might imagine. And it's not so much that we've rejected God, but culturally we've kind of made him an insignificant part of our lives. He's our Sunday God. He's our church God. And he's in this section of our life, Sundays from 9.30 to 10.30. But when we're not worshiping him on Sundays, then on Monday we worship success and achievement and pleasure and fun and popularity. And little G gods, much like Baal, claim our affections and become substitutes for the one true God. You know, the Bible clearly tells us in the New Testament that we can't serve two masters. And 1 John chapter 2, it says, Do not love the world, anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. As it was in the days of Elijah, we need to make sure that we are not drawn away from God by the things that the world puts out there for us. 
So what did Elijah do? Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Now there were thousands and he's one of the only ones left or the only one left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophet choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces and put, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God and I'll call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people say, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls, prepare it first since there are so many of you. Call in the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. Then they called in the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. So Elijah prepares and presents this way to settle the matter once and for all. A contest of the ages, if you will. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And if Baal is a God, surely he can just send some fire down. But no matter what the prophets do, the heavens are silent. Have you ever known someone who is passionate and sincere about their beliefs, but they're sincerely wrong? I don't question the sincerity of the prophets of Baal or Asherah here. They had just simply placed their faith in a false God. And we see the same thing today. People place their faith in false religions, in dead prophets, in empty promises. And sadly, their fate will not be much different than the prophets of Baal. After a period of time, Elijah begins to taunt them. Verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So here's Elijah. What's the matter? Is your God sleeping? Maybe he's in deep thought and, and can't be bothered, or perhaps he's on a road trip. One translation says, or maybe he's in the bathroom. Elijah's just poking fun at him. And they're up there, they're just a hooting and a hollering and they're dancing and they're doing everything they can to get their God to send some fire. It was a bloody mess, but nothing happened. And finally, after watching all of this, Elijah decided it was time to end it all. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it again a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you are Lord, our God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I so appreciate the courage of Elijah here because if the fire doesn't fall, he's a dead man, right? He's a dead man. You know, that is a mark of authentic Christianity when you're willing to stand courageously for what you believe in. And it's one of the things that I think makes Elijah an unlikely hero. He just simply obeyed God's commands. He called out others who were doing wrong. He stood for God when everyone else was against him. And we need some Elijahs today. We need some people who are willing to stand up against an ungodly culture. We need some people who are willing to walk by faith and live in obedience to God's word. We need some Christ followers who will speak the truth when the truth needs to be spoken. Sometimes we are called to speak against the false prophets who lead people away from God. And we live in an era and a time when right is called wrong and wrong is called right. People are hostile towards the God of the Bible. They don't like his rules. They don't like the Ten Commandments. They don't like his restrictions on their behaviors. And I'm afraid it's only going to get worse until the Lord returns or a revival takes place. From the very beginning of this church, we've been praying that God would spark a movement in Southwest Florida. And until then, we must stand for God, even if it means we stand alone and aren't socially accepted. What did Elijah do next? Verse 40, then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let any of them get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. He said, whoa, slaughter. Now we don't know if he slaughtered 450, just the prophets of Baal or the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, but they were all killed, probably all of them. He had to do this, number one, in, in response to what God had said in the law. But secondly, it was crucial that he kill the prophets of Baal before God sent the rain, or the people would say, oh, Baal did this. So he killed all the prophets. And once they were all dead, God sent the rains. Now, if you come back next week, I'll finish the story of Elijah because he had a few more battles that he had to face. But before we wrap up today, I want to give you just a couple, couple takeaways. First, we need to realize that all religions are not the same. The children of Israel tried to blend faith in Jehovah God with worship of the false god Baal. And it didn't work. Because God will not share his glory with anyone or anything. Now we see this today. People put coexist bumper stickers on their cars thinking that all religions are basically the same and we should all just be one big happy family. Can I tell you right now, we are not all the same. We do not share all the same doctrines. All religions do not believe in Jesus. All religions do not believe that salvation is by grace through faith. People need to read the Bible and learn the truth. Not everyone is going to go to heaven when they die. Only those who've put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and of trusting only him. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except 
through me. Jesus is the only door. It's not religion. It's not a denomination. It's nothing that you or I do. It is only by putting our faith in Jesus Christ that we get into heaven. Jesus could not have been any clearer. So what you believe matters. You cannot blend 14 components of opposing religions together and create your own version of Christianity. I see it all the time on TV. My God is a loving God and would never send someone to hell. My God is an accepting God and would never tell somebody how they should live their lives. As if you have the ability to create your own God. They tried this and it didn't work, right? There's one God. The same God who brought fire down in the days of Elijah. There's one God that we serve today. Secondly, sincerity is not evidence of validity. You can be sincerely wrong. Your grandma, bless her heart, could have been sincerely wrong. Having faith is important, but where you place your faith is what makes the difference. If you place your faith in a false god or a false religion, you're no different than the 450 prophets of Baal. Sincere but sincerely wrong. Many people today reject the absolute truth claims of Christianity. And they feel that by doing good deeds, or by simply believing in a higher power, that God is going to open the pearly gates of heaven for them. It will not. If good deeds led to salvation, then salvation is earned upon the basis of works. And scripture clearly teaches that that is not the case. Ephesians 2 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Scripture clearly teaches that salvation is a gift that we receive by faith. We don't receive it by works But once we're saved, we're saved for good works. We're saved for good works, not by good works. Many of you are really good people. You've been a good person your whole life, probably. Sure, you've sinned, but by and large, in your mind, you've done more good than bad, and you're a good person. And because because you've done more good than bad, you think you're going to be accepted by God. And I'm here to tell you this morning, that's not the case, because that's not the way it works. That's a works-based salvation There's nothing you can do that's good enough to get you into heaven. Salvation is only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on Calvary's cross. The prophet Elijah stood before the entire nation demanding that they make a choice, remember? You waver between two opinions. You need to make a choice. And he offered no room for compromise. You're either going to follow Baal Are you going to follow Jehovah God? There is no option C. And we have that same choice today. You can align yourself with those who trust in religion and good works. Or you can align yourself with those who put their faith in Jesus only. There is no room for compromise. The showdown on Mount Carmel was a defining moment in Elijah's life. And this might be a defining moment in your life today. Perhaps this is the first time you've ever heard anything like this. 
It's the first time you've ever heard that salvation isn't tied to your good works, church membership, or anything that you do. It's only based upon what Jesus Christ did on Calvary's cross and you receiving that gift by faith. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is no more important decision that you could ever make than to trust him. Say, how do I do that? The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a gift that you ask for. Now, if I reached in my pocket and pulled out a $100 bill and reached it out here and said, this is for anybody that wants it, and nobody got up and got it, then nobody would have it. And I'd put it back in my pocket. You see, if you don't reach out and get it, you don't have it. God offers his salvation, but he doesn't force you to take it. But it's there. It's a gift. It's there for you to receive by asking for it. But you have to ask for it. It's not automatic. It's by faith. It's a gift. That's what grace means. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I just want you to know this prayer isn't a magic prayer. You're not going to find it in the Bible anywhere. And I never pray it the same way twice. Because it's not about the words of the prayer. It's about the intent of your heart. It's about you saying to God, I realize I'm a sinner and I've done wrong and I've displeased you with my life and I'm not going to get into heaven based on my good works. And it's when you finally come to the place where you realize that your only way into heaven is through Jesus Christ, just as the way scripture said. And you're willing to put your faith in Christ by simply asking him to save you. And if you're here this morning and you'd like to receive Christ as your savior, I'll lead you in a prayer, but it's really, it's really between your heart and the heart of God. And whether you get the words just right, isn't that important? What's important is that you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ and trusting in him. So if you'd like to receive Christ as your savior this morning, would you pray? Well, you don't have to pray out loud between your heart and the heart of God. You can pray this prayer. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I know I'm a sinner and I've done wrong and I'm sorry. I've broken your word. I've broken the Ten Commandments. I've lied. I've cheated. I've stolen. I've done things I know I shouldn't do and I'm wrong. Please forgive me. The best I know how, I'm asking Jesus to forgive me and to save me. I want to receive the gift of salvation and spend eternity in heaven. I turn from my sin and I want to please you, God, with my life. And I thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen. With our heads still bowed and our eyes still closed, please, no one looking around, I would like to pray for you. If you just prayed to receive that prayer, I'm not going to call you out. I'm not gonna, I just want to pray for you. If you just prayed to receive Christ as your Savior, would you slip your hand up all over the auditorium? Just put it up and then put it right back down. God bless you and you. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I can't even count the number of hands that were raised this morning. And your word says that there is rejoicing in heaven today. And so, God, we celebrate what you've done in this place. And God, I thank you for each hand that's raised, each person who's put their faith in Jesus Christ that's trusted him. God, I pray now that you would just help them draw closer to you. God, that you would use them to bring glory and honor to you with their lives. 
And Father, may we all be sons and daughters of God who walk by faith and trust you. Lord, may we take this message of salvation to every man, woman, and child in Southwest Florida. And God, may we bring light into the midst of darkness. May we fulfill the command that Jesus gave us and the commission that he entrusted to his church. And Father, just use us. Father, may we stand firm even in the midst of a wicked generation. May we stand and honor you. May we be like Elijah. May we be obedient in all we do. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can we just praise God this morning? Amen. And amen. If you received Christ this morning and you'd like to talk to any one of our pastors, we're here for you. You can stop by the My Venture table. Anything we can do to help you, we'd love to do it. Let's all stand as we sing our final song.